Now, have you ever done something which made you really dirty or messy? Maybe you slipped once and fell in the mud. That's happened to me on more than one occasion. Perhaps you've had a food fight with your friends and, and you and your clothes end up being really filthy. Or it could have been a job that you had to do which was particularly messy and unpleasant. Sometimes we get so dirty that we're just longing to get into that bath or under that shower and feel clean again. We want to feel refreshed and restored. And I remember a number of occasions when after an afternoon working and perspiring in the garden, I came in and covered in dirt, soil under my fingernails, hot and sticky. And I just couldn't wait to get into the shower and wash away all that dirt. But the dirt just wouldn't come off with simple washing. It was deeply ingrained. It required plenty of hot water, hard scrubbing and strong soap to shift it all. It took quite a bit of effort. But then as I stepped out of the shower, I felt clean and refreshed. There seems to be something about dirt uh, and about being or feeling dirty that triggers this sort of response in us. Why does a mother say to a small child as that child goes out to play, now don't you go getting dirty? Why do we feel so uncomfortable when wearing dirty clothes? Why do we want to look clean and presentable when going to meet someone? Well, I want to suggest the rather strong possibility that God has built into us, into the way we think, a sort of sensitivity to being physically dirty, to being filthy on the surface of our lives, uh, that can trigger an awareness of the fact that sin, our pride, our desire to do things our way rather than God's way, our insistence that we know best rather than accepting that God really knows what's best for us. That these things mess us up and make us dirty or unclean, as the Bible says, on the inside. That sense of feeling unclean may reveal itself through a guilty conscience when we know we've messed up and we regret it. Or maybe we try to suppress that feeling and pretend we haven't really messed up. Then there's an even darker stain within us. Now, of course, when we get dirty on the outside, we know how we can get clean again. We can take a bath or a shower. But what about being unclean on the inside? How do we deal with that? Well, in the bit of the Bible that we're looking at this morning, Hebrews chapter 9, we discover that Jesus can deal with this for us. And what's more, he can do it perfectly. He can do what we are unable to do for ourselves. He can make us completely clean. He can deal with all the messiness of our lives. He can refresh and renew us. And we'll come back and look at that in a bit more detail in a few moments. So we were thinking earlier about this idea that because of our very human tendency to mess things up, to think that living our lives the way we want to, rather than the way that God knows is best for us, those things the Bible calls sin, 
we are left in need of being cleaned up on the inside, as it were. That's the idea, the imagery, the analogy that the writer of this letter to the Hebrews is using in this chapter with its descriptions of cleansing and purification. Now, this is tricky because it all seems rather alien to us. Unlike the author's original audience, we're not familiar with the concepts that he's using. And so we need to do a bit of work to unpack them and see how they are still relevant to us today. The basic thread of the argument is actually quite simple. God opens the way for his people to escape from captivity. For the Israelites, this was captivity in Egypt. For us, it is captivity to sin and to death. But there's still a problem. We're no longer trapped by sin, but we still fall into sin. And sin gets in the way of our intimacy with God. The relationship is strained. And the bad news is that we can't fix this ourselves. However, the outstandingly good news is that Jesus makes it possible for us to be cleaned up, to be purified and for our relationship with God to be made whole. So as we roll up our sleeves to dig into this passage, the question is, where does that come from and how does it work? Well, if you turn to Hebrews chapter nine, you see that the first thing we encounter in this chapter is a description of a place for worship and the rituals associated with it. This was a pattern given to the people by God. The author describes it as being a provision of the first covenant or agreement. Now, last week, Paul helped us to explore that idea of a first covenant and a new covenant when we looked at the previous chapter, Hebrews chapter eight. This first covenant referred to here is the one that was made through Moses between God and the people of Israel at Sinai, just after he had rescued them from slavery in Egypt. And we read that story in the book of Exodus near the very beginning of the Bible. Israel had been freed not only because they were suffering in captivity, but also so that they might fulfil their true calling, that they would go into the desert, we read, to worship God. So in one sense, it's all about worship. They entered this covenant during, through and for the purpose of worship. More specifically, it's about our coming into a place of intimacy with God. Worship fundamentally uh, is about seeking and expressing intimacy with God as we express his great worth to us. So what's the relevance of this description of the arrangement of the tabernacle? as it's described here, that designated place of worship. It's described as comprising a front area, which is, was called the holy place, and a rear or inner area called 
the most holy place. Only the priests could enter the front area and entry to the most holy place, the place where God manifested his presence amongst the people was even more restricted. Only the high priest could enter and then only once a year and never without blood. We'll come back to that later. But the intention of the author here in describing this is to highlight a series of barriers between the worshipper and God. These physical barriers of the tabernacle were designed to be reminders of or pointers to the spiritual barrier that sin erects between us and God. In other words, the purpose is to draw attention to the really serious nature of the problem, to the fact that sin affects us at a really deep level and is extremely difficult to deal with. Hence the complicated rituals. Now, under the provision of this first covenant, the offering of sacrificial blood would act as a purging or cleansing agent which could deal with the effects of sin and defilement. But the writer draws our attention to two serious limitations with this provision. Firstly, the severe restrictions of access to God which were imposed indicates that in a sense this arrangement was only provisional. Secondly, he draws our attention to the fact that the sacrifices offered were actually inadequate to provide decisive cleansing. We read that in verses 9 and 10. And that indicates that this arrangement was actually imperfect. It only dealt with the externals, the dirt on the outside, as it were, ritual cleaning. It was ineffective in providing inner cleansing. This provision for worship and sacrifice is but a shadow of what is required and what is yet to come. The writer describes this in terms of our consciences needing to be cleansed or purified. And the theologian William Lane describes it like this. He writes the term conscience in Hebrews is used in a distinctive way. It describes the whole interior self. It reflects upon the relationship of the whole person to God. In the context of worship, it is the burdened conscience which effectively keeps a worshipper from God. And he goes on to say, in Hebrews, the function of the conscience is not to discriminate between right and wrong, but to remember the sin that separates the worshipper from God. It exposed the truth that defilement extends to the heart as well as to the body and that it erects a barrier to the living God. So how are we to deal with how are we to address these two key issues? the provision of an adequate sacrifice and unlimited access to God. Well, we're given here, uh, as we move on, as we read verses 11 to 14, we read that Christ has now become the high priest. We read, we thought about that a couple of weeks ago. He has entered the greater, more perfect tabernacle in heaven, which was not made by human hands, and is not part 
of this created order. With his own blood, not the blood of goats and calves, he entered the most holy place once for all time and secured our redemption forever. The author is gathering up his previous considerations about the tabernacle and its associated ceremonies and rituals. Firstly, the offering made by Jesus is not made in a sanctuary created by human hands, a mere shadow, but in heaven itself, in the very presence of God. There's no longer any need for mere symbols of God's provision and his presence. And secondly, the offering is not second hand. It's not the blood of some animal, but an offering of his very own blood. And what's more, we go on to read, the offering needs to be made once and once only. Of course, this begs the question, why is a sacrifice needed at all? And what's with all this blood? To us, it seems shocking, primitive and barbaric. But let's be careful before simply dismissing it. In writing about this passage, the theologian Tom Wright has this to say. He writes, many people have reacted angrily against what they see as a kind of primitive theology. No pardon without bloodshed, they say. The very idea is barbaric. But he goes on to say, well, we shouldn't be too quick to hurl charges of barbarism around the place. Our modern society tolerates, even fosters so many things that previous generations and other civilizations today would consider barbaric. Atom bombs, he says, abortion as a method of birth control, anti-personnel landmines. And that's just a few beginning with A. So we are hardly in a position to glance at something deep and mysterious in a different culture and declare high handedly that it's primitive, barbaric or bizarre. So we really need to try and understand what's going on here and to do that we need to back up a bit. God makes several declarations regarding blood in the Old Testament. And perhaps fundamental here is the one we read in Leviticus. In Leviticus, that book of the law given under that Sinai covenant. Uh, in chapter 17, God tells us that life and blood are essentially one and the same. The blood carries life-sustaining nutrients to all parts of the body. It represents, in some sense, the essence of life. And in contrast, the shedding of blood represents the shedding of life, i.e. death. Blood is also used in the Bible as a metaphor to represent spiritual life. When Adam and Eve sinned in the Garden of Eden, right at the beginning of the story, by disobeying God and eating fruit of the forbidden tree, they experienced spiritual death immediately and physical death years later. God's warning, you shall not eat of the tree of knowledge of good and evil, for in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die, was fulfilled. Their blood, their lives were now tainted by sin. 
In his gracious plan, however, God provided a way out of their dilemma by declaring that the sacrifices of blood, first the blood of animals and finally the blood of the Lamb of God, Jesus Christ, would be sufficient to cover the sin of fallen mankind and restore us to spiritual life. He himself instituted the sacrificial system, beginning with the animals he killed to provide the first garments, thereby covering the sin of Adam and Eve. All the Old Testament sacrifices which followed from then on were temporary ones, needing to be repeated over and over. These continual sacrifices were a foreshadowing of the, of the one true and final sacrifice, Christ, whose blood shed on the cross would pay the penalty of sin forever. His death, we read in the next chapter of Hebrews, made any further blood shed unnecessary. And here we're being led closer and closer to the heart of what we have to admit is a deep mystery, the deep mystery which sacrifice involves. And I'd suggest there are three possible elements of this to consider. Firstly, there's a sense of us offering to God something which is valuable and pure as a sign that we are offering our whole lives to him and to his service as a response to his love for us. For the Israelites, this was the sacrificial offering of an unblemished animal from their flocks. For us, it should be our very lives. Secondly, a reminder that the consequence of sin is death. Our lives are forfeit because of our rebellion, wickedness and impurity. And yet the life of the sacrificial animal symbolised by the blood being poured out in death is a sign that God will rescue us by providing a life that is given in death in place of our own life. And so thirdly, as we put these two things together, we can see that our present state of uncleanness can be washed away to give us a fresh start, a renewed life, cleansed and fit for God and for the service and for service in, with God. This would go some way to understanding the point of sacrifice within the system provided by the older covenant but now we have we but now we have a new covenant brought into effect by Christ offering himself to God as a perfect sacrifice here in verse 15 it would seem that somehow the blood of the sacrificial animals was pointing forward to an even deeper truth that at the heart of the sacrificial system there lies the self-giving love of God himself Christ offers up his own life, pours out his own blood in the language used here, in place of the forfeiture of our lives. Here is the promise that sins will finally be forgiven in a way that they had not been fully under the previous covenant. And the author then leads us on to a startling new idea. He begins, now when someone leaves a will. And at first this seems odd 
and confusing until we realise that the word translated as covenant is the same Greek word that is translated here as will in the legal sense in our English Bibles. A will is legally binding, but it doesn't come into effect until the death of the one making the will has been properly established. The stunning implication here is that the new covenant itself comes into force only after the death of Jesus. The huge and powerful conclusion is that God himself becomes human and offers his own life, literally shedding his own blood so that all these signs and symbols would become a reality. This was central to the teaching of the apostles. And we really need to grasp the enormity of it. And so we've tied together the idea of Jesus as our perfect high priest from chapter 7, Jesus uh, as our new and better covenant from chapter 8, with this new idea of Jesus as a perfect and unblemished sacrifice. The rituals and imagery the writer uses in Hebrews are so very alien to us. But these descriptions of God's provision are included in our scriptures in the Bible to help us grasp the bigger picture. This is not always an easy task. So let's finish with what might be a slightly more familiar metaphor, though by way of warning, it also involves blood. It might be helpful to think of sin like an untreated disease that poisons the whole body. Imagine toxins in the bloodstream. Now, if the toxins aren't too serious, then a detox diet might be one way of treating this. But it can't address all issues and problems. It's not able to deal completely with the problem when it's more serious. If there was greater damage to our body, perhaps our kidneys aren't working properly, then we'd need dialysis treatment to cleanse and purify our blood. If the disease is a really serious one, then we'd probably need a blood transfusion. So it's not a perfect analogy, but perhaps you get the idea. In effect, we need a spiritual blood transfusion. That's what Jesus has given us. And that's what the prior sacrificial system was pointing to or towards. The basic thread of the argument remains simple. God has opened up the way by which we can escape our captivity to sin and death. But there's still a problem. We're no longer trapped by sin, but we still carry sin within our hearts. And sin gets in the way of our intimacy with God, our access to God. The relationship is strained, to say the least. The bad news is that we can't fix this ourselves. The outstandingly good news is that Jesus makes it possible for us to be cleaned up, to be purified and for our relationship with God to be made whole. Are we ready to accept the treatment? Just as the Israelites were freed from slavery so that they might go and worship and serve God, 
so too we are freed from sin so that we might fulfill our calling to worship him and to serve him to encounter him in a place of intimacy the way is open to us will we choose to follow jesus and enter in giving our lives to him completely or will we prefer to keep deviating and going our own way Father God, we just thank you for this deep uh, and in some ways unfathomable mystery that you have given your very life uh, in place of our lives, which have been forfeit through sin. And that through this work, you have enabled us to be cleansed and renewed. Lord, we are humbled before this mystery and we just worship and praise you lord may we be ready eager even to accept the treatment to dedicate our lives to you to following you in all things to seeking your will and pleasure in all things that we might give glory to you the one alone who is worthy to receive all honour and praise. Amen.